Well, you have a new album out with uh, UB40. Um, before we talk about that album, um, just your quick thoughts on, on, on the first Beggar Rhythm in 1985. What, what's the first thing that comes to your mind when you think about that album? Well, that was our first collaboration, you know, that was uh, the idea was for us to use uh, existing rhythm tracks and get um, Birmingham artists, MCs, DJs to voice over uh, our current music, you know. Uh, but of course, we also did the collaboration with Chrissy Hind out of The Pretenders, uh, which gave us a number one record in the UK. Um, but the idea was was principally to uh, to give a platform to Birmingham artists, you know, um, on our on our rhythms. But uh, this time round, we wanted to do the same thing, but more international and international yeah. flavour, you know. If you what is uh, I I can imagine if you give other artists uh, well the chance to um, work with your existing uh, rhythms. What is the first time? What did you learn about your music? What other people told you? The Birmingham acts and Chrissy High, for example. What did they tell you about your music and how they, when they worked with it, what uh, what were the impressions? I have no idea. Um, I know that they they enjoyed it. You know that. Uh, which always seems to happen when with this this time round when we sent the rhythm tracks to people, we we would send two or three rhythm tracks to each artist and say pick pick one and put a song on it, you know. And some of them put a song on all of the ones we sent them. So we sent House of Shem in New Zealand. We sent them three tunes and said pick one, and they gave us they sent us back three songs, you know. Yeah. So. Uh, and they said it was it was really easy to work on the music you sent us. You know, it was so easy that we had a song for each one. And, uh, you know, that's that's how it ended up with three tracks from House of Shem on the album. What 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 triggered you to? Well, when did you come first come with this idea, maybe to to revisit uh, the format of Beggar Rhythm, but then with international artists? When when when, when was it seed uh, planned? While we were on the road in 2019, um, we just obviously we when we tour we always meet other artists we we play with other artists because we have uh acts that support us you know house of shem played with us in new zealand uh in 2017 and we said to them that we'd love to do something with them uh at that point and then when you travel and you meet other people like we we uh we t when we did australia we played with uh inner circle the jamaican band you know um and they said they'd love to do something with us. And it was, it's that simple, really. It just plants a seed, you know, and it just kept happening. We we met the guys from India, the Reggae Rajas, when we toured in India. And uh, we just thought it'd be a really nice idea. We're just from talking, the band on the tour bus, you know, just talking and saying it'd be really nice to revisit that idea that we did in the 80s. But to use, you know, the friends that we made over the years traveling and uh, just invite them to do it, have an international sounding bagger rhythm, you know, hence the name Bigger Bagger Rhythm. Yeah, Bigger, yeah. But what, what, how did you make the selection for you to pick the international reggae artists? What's a... Oh, well, principally, it's the ones we had met the most recently, the ones that we'd been on the road with the most recently. Also, of course, we uh, there were a couple of the guys from the original Bagger Rhythm album, 
that we had worked with on our last album, uh, For The Many, uh, a couple of those guys from the Bag of Rhythm album had guested on our latest album. And that was actually what planted the seed um, for us talking about a, co a collaboration, you know. So those two guys were the first, we said to them too, would you like to work on a new Bag of Rhythm album? And of course they said yes. And that was what started it. And then we just thought of the people that we'd worked with most recently, House of Shem, uh, Inner Circle, uh, also um, people that that we haven't worked with, but someone, um, someone I was speaking to recently, Winston Francis, who'd always, always said that he'd love to do something ever since we recorded his song, Mr. Fix It. Uh, so it was just simply the first ones that came into our heads. And then, of course, a couple of brand new artists from Jamaica, up and coming new guys, Black Hero and Leno Banton, who we hadn't met previously, but we heard good things about them. So our management approached them and said, would you be interested in doing a collaboration? Uh, UB40 are doing a collaboration album. Would you be interested in being on it, you know? And they both said yes. Again, we sent Black Hero three tunes and said, pick one. And he sent us back three songs. <laughs> so he ended up with three songs on the album too. I mean, the thing what, is... What, what, what was the freedom that you gave each artist? What was the freedom? What did you tell them? We said, whatever you want, whatever you want. We gave no restrictions at all. We just said, whatever you feel, do, you know, and... Is there one, is there one, one let's, let's, let's pick a, um, let's pick a collaboration. Is there one thing, what, what it comes into your mind, say, well, that's something that I didn't expect, but he or she really surprised me. Um, I, it, what you get back, the re, when you've asked somebody you pretty well have an idea of what you're going to get back because of what they produce themselves yeah. anyway, you know? So it's not, I don't think there was a surprise. Uh, the surprise would be how good everything was, the quality of everything, you know? When House of Shem sent us three songs back and all three were excellent, you know, we couldn't choose one. We couldn't say, okay, we'll use that one. That's why they ended up with three on there because they were all so good, you know? Um that was the only surprise to me was was the quality of the stuff that they they sent back and and we could have asked another dozen different artists you know and uh, if this album uh is received as well as i think it's going to be received if it if it's uh, a commercial success you know and people like it then there's no reason why we couldn't do an even bigger bagger rhythm <laughs> the big bang bagger rhythm um <laughs> Is it for you? Um, how did you select your own tracks that you send out? What's... Well, they were all rhythm tracks from uh, the last album, the, for the many album, um, which was uh, a kind of bit of a throwback album because it sang, it, our friends and fans told us that it sounded like 1980s UB40, you know, that it sounded like a throwback album like it could have been the fourth or the fifth album, you know. Uh, so it had that flavour anyway, and we thought we'll just send backing tracks from that album um, because we'd already done a dub mix of the album. We'd released the normal album and with a companion dub album, uh, and we just thought 
a collaboration album using the same rhythm tracks would be a perfect um, companion album to For The Many. Uh, it may even get released as a triple album one day. Who knows? Is it um, how's the current state of reggae music worldwide? What uh, can you comment on that? It goes in cycles. You know, it's uh, everywhere you travel in the world. There's you find there's a local reggae band. You know, yeah. reggae has been adopted and adapted by every country in the world. It's it's truly um international universal music you know how come i don't know i don't know why well i mean for me it's it's the best music there is it's uh, it's instant it's uh, it's so danceable it's sexy you know i think everybody loves reggae you know it doesn't matter where you go and even people that listen to completely different music if you could be a heavy rock or a heavy metal fan you know, and still like reggae, you know, or you can like the the craziest uh, metallic dance music, you know, and still like reggae because it's a universal music. It seems to work everywhere and for every taste. And as I say, every corner of the world that we've travelled to, and we've been to every corner of the world, um, there's a local reggae band. Even if you go to Japan, you know, you will f you you'll find a reggae club. And you go there and they're playing Japanese reggae, you know? No, that's, that's, that's really fascinating because if you compare it to hip-hop, for example, hip-hop also has all these local branches. You have Dutch hip-hop, you have well, UK hip-hop, maybe uh, uh, certain maybe well, some, some twists. Yeah. I think they're very closely related. I think um, hip-hop, I don't think hip-hop, uh, in fact, probably most modern dance music wouldn't exist without the influence of reggae and the influence of dub, you know? Dub, I think, has informed the style of dance music for the last 40 years. Yeah. How come? What, is, what, what makes it so specific in, in the music? Is it what well, the backbeat is? What is it? You could, you could argue this for years, you know? It's, uh, I, I don't know what the secret is. I don't know what, what the appeal is. For me, um, it's it's the relationship between the bass and drums and the melody uh but for somebody else it could be something different you know i i don't know what it is all i know is that this that when reggae happened which was in my young teenage years when reggae was invented you know um from scar suddenly the music slowed down and Reggae was invented in the late 60s. Um, that's been the only music for me. Of course, I like other music. Of course, I listen to other music. But the 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 love that I have for reggae is like no other music, you know. And I uh, I think that's a it's a worldwide thing that that's how a lot of people feel about reggae. Is it for you what what? Um, because you've released many albums, um, several. Incarnations, of course. Um, when you play reggae, when you when you make music, when you try to write a song, uh, a reggae song, um, is it is the the format that you have for 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 reggae? Is it is it is it helpful or is, does it limit you when you write songs? How? I don't even I don't even think about it. I don't think of 
when I'm writing, I don't think I'm writing a reggae song. I just automatically play reggae. When I'm sitting playing guitar, working on a song, mm -hmm. I'm not playing guitar like I would to other music. I'm playing reggae rhythm. I automatically play reggae rhythm. So the song is automatically a reggae song. I I don't think any other way, really. That's just the way I've always made music, you know. Is it for you if you have to pick one song that you well, this is your more that you well, that you have more fun memories of um, the last album and then now how it turned out with with, with the collaborations? What song uh, would you pick? Well, off the last album. Yeah, I mean this album, and then because well you wrote the songs back then, and how did you um, well if you have for example Tipper Erie, Black Hero you mentioned. So one song that is more close to your heart, personally? Oh, that's very difficult. Um, possibly, I mean, I love the House of Shem songs. I, I, I think they're a very talented group of guys. Um, a very talented family, the Perkins family. Um, and so I have a, I have an emotional soft spot for that music because uh, Carl Perkins, um, the guy who formed the band with his sons, uh, he's now passed away. So these were his last recordings. Um, so they're very special to me, you know, from an emotional level. I get I get choked every time I hear the tunes because I always think of Carl, you know, and he was a lovely, wonderful man. So uh, for a different reason, that, that those songs are special to me, you know. Um, but I also love... I mean, it's hard to pick. I, I love Leno Banton's tune because it's so different. I love his lyrics. Um, but I also love the Kyoko track, which is a Birmingham group um, that reminds me very much of UB40 when we were young. Um, I think their lead singer's great. And I, I just love the song that they put over what was one of my songs, you know? Yeah. So, so uh, you... My my song was You Haven't Called Me Yet, uh, and they did a song very similar. They saw the title. They didn't even hear the song, the original song. They just saw the title and um, wrote a song called You Never Call Me, you know, which is the same thing, really, the same subject. But uh, the melody's brilliant, and uh, and I really like Matt, uh, Matt Doyle, the, the lead singer with the band. I really like his singing style. Is it something that you say, well, if you have a, the, the same song, I mean, the, they use the same music, but they didn't hear the song, and then they come up with a totally different uh, melody. What what does it tell you then? Well, obviously, um, you can, that's the whole point, you know. I mean, you, you want them to come with a different melody. If it was a similar melody, then it wouldn't be as, as uh, rewarding, you know. You want them to come with a completely different, that's what, that's the enjoyment you get is when it's so completely different to yours, you know, and they listen to the same piece of music, but they came up with something completely different. And that's, that's wonderful. That just tells you, you know, that's the secret of music, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Creativity. If you compare, for example, like you would say, the Perkins family, House of Shem, if you compare it well to you growing up with your brothers, uh, do you see similarities in, in the way they 
embrace the music and what it does does for them? Yeah, but of course, um, Carl Perkins formed. He was he was in the the uh, the band Herbs, the New Zealand reggae band Herbs, in the eighties, uh, and he then formed House of Shem with his two sons, uh, Tearmaker and Isaiah. Um, so, of course, there's similarities, but um, the difference is that that we as brothers went in the opposite direction to our father you know musically yeah. our father our father was a was a folk musician who uh, would have loved to have his sons join him in making his music you know but we went in the complete opposite direction and and we fell in love with reggae which kind of broke my father's heart you know because he dreamt that one day his boys would be making music with him you know um I mean, he was very proud of us. He was very proud of our success, and and uh, but he was he was disappointed that we played a different style of music to him. Whereas whereas that... Carl's sons had a love of reggae. They played exactly the same music as their father. There's a one point that your father said to you. Well, it's pretty okay, actually, the reggae that you make. Or um, I think once he saw how popular we were. When, when he saw that, you know, that we were... I mean, he, he made a speech once. He was given an, um, a Lifetime Achievement Award um, and he made a speech and he said that uh, he, he knew how proud he was of his sons when their first album sold more than all of his albums put together. <laughs> so I guess, you know, once, once he saw the success... You know, once he saw that uh, that people genuinely loved the music we were making, then it opened up his heart and his ears to the music. You know, how how do you look back on well, you said the 1985 film. How do you look back on on the heyday of your musical uh, success? And and is it was it a haze, or did you really experience it to the fullest? Or well. I mean, the eighties were incredible for us, and we had we had fantastic success. And uh, I think I think we we enjoyed it probably to excess. Um, but then the nineties were even more successful because um, we then we we then had increased success in America, and we had. Um, I mean, we didn't have a. A hit record in America until '88 with uh, Red Red Wine. Five years after it had been a hit everywhere else, it became a hit in America. And then, of course, we had um, we had a number one in America with Can't Help Falling in Love. But that wasn't until 1994. You know, so again we had another massive wave of success um, with later records. You know, that was we were. We were 15 years into being a band at that point, you know, and it was that was the most successful record we ever had. So, yeah, I was just saying. So, I mean, we we had an incredible success for uh, close on 20 years, and here we are, 40 years later, we can still go anywhere in the world and sell out a concert, you know. So, it's uh, it's a fantastic life. I, I still think I you... still pinch myself. <laughs> yeah, it's good to do. Uh, is this for you? No, but I'm, what I think, and maybe I'm wrong. If I'm wrong, just uh, 
correct me, of course. Um, I think in the 80s, there was also sort of more of a, I don't know, social element, more sort um, um you really uh, had like i said the you felt the pulse of the society more with your music do you do you understand do, do you understand what i mean well i don't think i don't think that's ever changed it, people as soon as you be, you become commercially successful yeah. with red red wine and can't help falling in love etc some people dismiss what do you do after that they say oh they become commercial they used to be political, but then they became a covers band, you know. It's just not true. We recorded more than 20 studio albums uh, and only three of them, <laughs> are, or four of them, are albums of covers. We've never stopped being political. We've never stopped saying the same things. That's true. If you listen to our latest album, I know, yeah. it has the same political content as the albums of the 80s. It, no, none of that has changed. We're still screaming and shouting. It's just that uh, nobody's listening so much. <laughs> How come? Because the proof is that really music, you know, doesn't change anything. It only reflects the way people think. It only reflects, it reflects the mood of the people. It doesn't change the mood of the people. When you're When you're saying things, generally... You're preaching to the converted, you know. You're uh, people are agreeing with what you're saying because they already feel that way, you know. But did you, did you always feel this way? I can imagine when I mean, John Lennon, Gibbs, Jan, blah blah blah. The first wave of the first wave of political music. I think there was still a sense that you could actually achieve something, and maybe something was achieved back then. I don't know. What is your idea on it? Is it is it? Become... I, don't think, I don't think anything is ever achieved with music. No? I think music is the soundtrack to change. So when things change, people associate those changes, political movements, okay. with, with certain music. But the music didn't create the change. The music reflects the change and the way people feel. And do you, you know? think the music becomes the soundtrack to the political okay. movement? What is the what is the political movement that is happening right now for you? What is the main political movement, the plain main changes that are happening now in the UK, for example? Well, it's it's always the same things. It's it, it's always a battle between the haves and the have-nots. Nothing changes, you know. Uh, there's always a battle about prejudice. There's always a battle about racism. Uh, the Black Lives Matter is 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 exactly the same as Rock Against Racism, which, you know, we were involved with in, in the 80s, you know, even the 70s. But, but does it change then? No, things don't change. That, but, proves, that proves that music yeah. changes nothing, you know. <laughs> but is it, is it a, isn't it, well, you're now 40 years making albums, isn't it that also a bit discomforting that you actually say that it, that, that, that it isn't changing anything, or is it okay? Is it just... It's, okay? it's not okay. It makes me very sad, you know. It's right. uh, And it's it, it's tiring that, you you know, you keep saying the same thing over and over again. And you, ha you come to the realisation pretty soon, I think, in life that actually people aren't listening, you know, that uh, nothing's going to change. And and the, the sad fact is that, um, you know, these things don't change. 
maybe, maybe very slightly over time, you know, slight changes are made. But uh, in the end, things are still the same. This My country is still full of rabid racism. There are still horrible people out there that are full of hate, you know, and nothing's going to change that, I don't think. When did you, when were you first aware that it didn't matter? You said at a certain point. I don't know. I don't know when that happened. I, at, at some point it dawned on me that actually we were only voicing the opinions of our contemporaries, you know, of our friends and, uh, and that, you know, people actually weren't listening. I mean, with social media, you know, the, the constant attacks we have from people saying, why do you bring politics into your music? As if, as if they've never listened to a song that we've written, you know, because they, on, they only know Red Red Wine or uh, Cherry O' Baby or whatever, you know, and they, they seem to think that we've only, only just turned political and, and they get upset with us because, you know, I just want to hear the music. I just want. I just want to. I just want you to be a, a music band. You know, no, the thing stop, is, what trying to upset me. You know, no, I I, I listened to you a lot uh, during the eighties and 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 the nineties. And one of my favorite tracks, for example, is "If It Happens Again." I really think it's a really powerful music, musical driven track. Um, is it for you? You well, you had all those political tracks too, but then, like you say, you had success with Red Red Wine and with Kent and Falling in Love. Um, was that okay for you? Was it fantastic or was it a bit sour compared to your more po political work? Well, no, I mean, you make, you make records because you want them to be popular. And if, if, it, if you get a number one, then of course you're delighted, you know? Yeah. And the whole point of the Labour of Love projects was to show people why we fell in love with reggae to to play to show people the songs that turned us on when we were kids you know and uh, if you then do a version of that song and everybody goes out and buys it then you know you've done something right you know and that's a that's a wonderful thing I've, I'll, i will never complain at having commercial success with a record you know that's why you exist and uh it helps you to do all the other things as well, you know. I mean, yeah. we've had we've had commercial success with political songs, obviously. Yeah. Uh, you know, um, what was the one you just said? If it happens again, that was that was a top ten record in in the UK, you know. And ninety nine percent of the people that had that record had no idea what the song was about. The same with um, Madame Medusa or Rat in the Kitchen. You know, they were all about Margaret Thatcher. Yeah. <laughs> But uh, people didn't know that, you know, generally. Um, but also, you know, a track like One in Ten, which is an obvious social comment, you know, that was that was a top 10 hit, uh, hit everywhere, you know. So we still, we still had the commercial success without the covers, you know. We've yeah. had, I don't know, 40-something top 40 hits. Yeah, you were in, you were in the UK. Yeah, I think in the UK, I, I looked it up. I think you had the most uh, weeks in the UK top 40 uh, with Madness, for example. Um, there's one question I still have because I have to, I only have a few minutes left. How hard was it for you personally and then with 
continuing with music once your brother Ali left? Was it hard? Was it? It, it was traumatic when he left, you know, uh, obviously, because um, the whole reason I wanted to be in a band was to be in a band with my brother, you know. Um, when I said to him in the 70s, when we went to see Bob Marley in concert in 1976, and I said to him, that's what I want to do. If you're ever serious, because um, he's always been a great singer, you know, and we've always talked about being in a band when we were kids, you know, and I just said to him, that's what I want to do. If you ever want to be serious about it, let me know, you know, and uh, we did. We we got serious in 1978 and, and, you know, everything was fantastic from there for 30 years, you know, um, but things change, you know, and he he decided he wanted to go off and do his own thing. He had a he had a new wife and a new life, and he uh, it was a bit spinal tap, but you know he wanted to go off and and try a new horizons, and and he he really believed that uh, he was going to take our fan base with him, you know, but our fan base is fiercely loyal to the band UB40 because of the ethos of the band, because of the democratic nature, because we share everything equally, because it doesn't matter who does what, we all get the same, you know. Um, so there was a kind of a backlash against him when he left, but we carried on. And luckily I had another brother <laughs> uh, who, who also, we all always sang together as kids, you know, so uh, I tried to get him to be in the band when we started in in the 70s, you know, but uh, he had other plans. He had other ideas, you know, uh, but when I I had another brother to uh, that was lucky for me because we still kept the sound and the feel of the original band, even though we didn't have Ali, we could still have that sort of brother blend, you know, vocally. Uh, so that made it a lot easier for us to carry on. And we, we never questioned whether we would carry on or not. It was just, we've lost our singer, we need to carry on, we'll find another singer, you know? And oh, you said there are many, many bands that have lost a singer and carried on, and sometimes with even more success, you know? That's true, ACDC for example. And is it for you, well, you said it was traumatic. Is it for you on, on, on a personal level you mean traumatic? Yeah, yeah, of course because I no longer had, uh, you know, my kid brother involved. It was it was a big deal. Um, but it wasn't a surprise because he'd been um, unhappy for the last year or two. Uh, and everyone knew that he was unhappy. And I was telling other members of the band that Ali was leaving. And they were saying, he'll never leave. He, you know, he won't leave. He'll, he'll moan, he'll complain, but he'll never leave, you know. And I said, believe me, he's leaving. I know he's going to go. Uh, so it wasn't a surprise. But of course, on a personal level, it was, it was a, a great sadness, really. Um, although, for the last couple of years, when he was with the band, he was very difficult to work with. Uh, so, you know, it swings and roundabouts. And, um, you know, in the end, we felt like it was a good thing that he'd gone because the the band was renewed. We had a, a new energy when he left 
and when Duncan came on board, we were enjoying ourselves again. You know, it was uh, it was a happy time. You know, we were we were enjoying ourselves and full of uh, renewed energy. So, uh, you know, the saddest thing is that he's never spoken to us since. How come? He just left. I think um, I think there's a, an amount of bitterness, you know, because of because when he left, he didn't have the success that he thought he was going to have. And with uh, with that came a lot of bitterness. And now he just he just makes up stories about us <laughs> that just aren't true. You know, his, his bitterness is, is incredible. Not only has he not spoken to me or any other member of the band, he hasn't spoken to Duncan, who uh, they've, they've always been very close. There's only 10 months between them in age, you know, so. Yeah, 50, 59, I guess. Yeah. 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 And, and uh, I mean, they've always been very close, almost like twins, you know. They've always sp spoken about everything together and stayed close. But uh, when Duncan came and joined the band, he told me that he wouldn't join the band without Ali's okay. Ali had to give him his blessing, which annoyed me intensely, but he did. Uh, he did speak to Ali and Ali said, do what you want. That's fine with me. I've left. I've left. You do what you want. And then never spoke to him again. And won't even allow him into a... Into, Duncan went to see him when he played in Birmingham and Ali wouldn't allow him in the venue. Which, did you try... Did, yeah, did you try to reach out to him the last couple of years? You? No. I've... Uh, we've... He came to a couple of uh, family things and refused to speak to me. Uh, and then since that, he hasn't spoken to any any member of the family. Uh, he doesn't speak to his older brother either, David, who is our oldest brother uh, of the four. He doesn't speak to him either uh, because apparently David's taken sides and that's not good. Uh, but also... Both my father and mother have passed away since Ali left and he didn't come to either of their funerals. It was, uh, he, he, he's, he's a strange guy. He's become a strange guy. Yeah, that was trying to ask you because when did he become then this way, do you think? The day he left. And possibly, uh, you know, the lack of success that he, that he had you know, because he expected to have success when he left UB40 and that didn't happen. He cancelled the first couple of uh, British tours because of lack of sales. So I think it just made him bitter and I, I think he's never got over it, you know. But do you think if, just hypothetically and maybe not because your brothers and, you know, brother Bob can always be repaired, of course. I don't know, but uh, maybe not. No. I don't. I don't know. Um, but Reunion. the things the things he said in the last ten years are just so nasty and so obviously so so untrue. <laughs> He's just told horrible lies about not just me, but Duncan and other members of the band. I mean, Brian, our sax player, uh, has they have been best friends since they were ten years old. 
They've been inseparable since they were 10 years old. And he doesn't talk to him. He has said just foul things about him, implying that he's stolen money off him. Uh, he stole money off the band. So did I, apparently. You know, it's just unbelievable nastiness has come. And it's, I think it's just got to a point now where nobody wants to see him, you know? The things he said are so nasty, so just unfair that but if, but if, but we, we just rather not speak to him. Yeah. I mean, he doesn't even talk to his family. He's, the kids that he left behind, you know, I see more of his kids than he does. Um, some of his children were at my, I got married to my longtime partner last year. Um, and some of his kids were at my wedding. You know, he wasn't obviously, but his kids were, you know, and uh, and they were at his mum's funeral last year. And, you know, they couldn't believe that he wasn't there. And I, I just said, why? Why don't you understand that that's how he is now? You have to understand that and you just have to accept it. That's how he is. When did you accept? I accepted it when he left because of the way he left. He just... He just walked out, I mean, no notice, no nothing. And then we made him stay for a tour because we already had tours booked. We already had an Australian tour we were about to do. And uh, the Australian promoter, we told the Australian promoter that Ali was walking out and he then phoned Ali and said, I'll sue you if you don't do this tour because it, I've sold all the tickets and, you know, you have to come and do this tour. So he did a last tour with us. And while we were on that tour, he didn't speak to us, <laughs> which was just um, very strange, you know. He did a, a whole Australian tour uh, without talking and then but, left. But I, what I was thinking, and maybe I'm, maybe I'm really ignorant, I don't know, but I have a brother too, and if my brother behaves a bit strange, then you grab him by the neck and say, come on, man. Uh, behave yourself and we have to we share the same family values and blah 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 and yeah. you can still connect but well I could, could do that I could do that with my other two brothers yeah. for sure but but the public the public way he has uh, you know um, slandered everybody is just yeah. you can't repair that you know you can't put your arm around him and go come on you can't do that I can do that with my other brothers, you know. We can argue and we can fall out, but we're still brothers. Him, it's got to a point where, you know, I mean, he's just been so unpleasant for 10 years. It, I just feel now like uh, I really don't care if I never see him, you know. I know, that's, I know that's a sad situation, but to be honest, I feel, I feel better without having to put up with him, you know. What if what if he turns up at your door and says sorry for the way I behaved and let's talk? Then I'll accept his apology, but uh, I don't think the members of the band would ever have him back. It, I just don't think I don't think that can be repaired. You know, they're too too wounded, too upset. The things he said, you know, there's a there's a lot of ill feeling now, and I just don't think I don't think it could happen. You know. It's too bad. Um, I'm over my time. Um, good luck. What are your plans? 
I, I saw you have a big tour planned. Yeah, we have uh, we have a few uh, festival type shows in the UK uh, starting in July. Um, July and August, we're we're doing a few uh, festivals, and then uh, we may well do some live streams because we can't travel. Uh, we may do some live stream concerts uh, in the summer. Maybe in the in a few weeks' time, we're already talking to some people about that. But then in the UK, we have a full tour booked for November, December, and 2022 is full. You know, we have Dutch gigs, we have uh, American, African, Australian, other European dates. So we'll be working nonstop throughout 2022. Okay, sounds good. Uh, Robin, may I thank you? Been a pleasure.